The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yes, this is part of a long cycle of instability uh, with behind-the-scenes maneuvering by Pakistan's military, but the mechanisms used are constitutional mechanisms because there have been some steps to strengthen the constitution and Pakistan's democracy. Those, because they are enshrined now in the constitution, those remain and that's important. Can this government come in and can the next government come in to enshrine other uh, more positive norms uh, as well as uh, constitutional changes? That'll be important to see. But can they ultimately do anything about civilian-military relations in that civilian supremacy is ensured? That's still the big question mark. I don't see anything fundamental changing in terms of civil-military relations and that balance or civilian supremacy uh, in Pakistan. So that's, that's uh, important to note. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, April 12th. 2022. Over the weekend, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, a former international cricket star who later ascended to the role of Prime Minister, was removed from office. Khan lost no confidence vote in Pakistani parliament that came after a few weeks of intense legal and political turmoil. To make sense of the complicated developments, I sat down with Madiha Afsal, a fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. I talked with Medea about how the situation has developed, how to think about the relative roles of opposition political parties and the military, and what comes next. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 12th. What's going on in Pakistani politics? So I think maybe the best place to start would be, there's so much going on here, and if you could just give us sort of a a three-minute overview of where everything's at and, and what the outcome is as of recording. And then as we go along, we can unpack the various strains of it. Well, Pakistan had been facing uh, a political crisis for weeks. It began in earnest uh, on March 8th, when the united opposition to Khan's government uh, filed a motion of a no confidence against him. Uh, there was a lot of politicking uh, in uh, the next few weeks. But it seemed Khan was set to lose the vote of no confidence when two sort of critical coalition allies moved from Khan's uh, ruling party coalition 
over to the opposition. The vote of no confidence was set to take place on Sunday, April 3rd. But that that day, out of the blue, the deputy speaker of the National Assembly threw out the no confidence motion, saying that um, it was part of a foreign conspiracy to oust Khan. And then at that point, the president of Pakistan dissolved the National Assembly on Khan's uh, advice. Now, uh, this was extremely controversial, and many legal scholars at that point said that this was unconstitutional. It went directly to the, the Supreme Court. That following week, Pakistan had sort of a political vacuum. Uh, it was unclear what the Supreme Court was going to do, so there was really no government. And um, the Supreme Court sort of turned this around uh, in pretty record time on April 7th, giving a, a ruling that basically said all of the decisions of April 3rd taken by the government were unconstitutional uh, and that the vote of no confidence needed to be held that Saturday. So now we come to Saturday, April 9th, and um, Khan's party filibustered their way through the day. By uh, that evening, it was still not clear whether the vote of no confidence was going to be held, but at that point, it seemed that the speaker uh, would be held in contempt of court if he didn't hold the vote of no confidence, and the Supreme Court was preparing for this. So they opened the Supreme Court late at night. The judges arrived at the Supreme Court. Minutes before midnight, the speaker uh, actually resigned. The deputy speaker of the National Assembly resigned. And at that point, the vote of no confidence did go ahead and uh, Khan was voted out. At the Monday after, so April 11th, uh, Shehbaz Sharif, the leader of the opposition, a former chief minister, three-time former chief minister of Punjab, former uh, brother of the former prime minister of, of Pakistan, three-time former prime minister of Pakistan, was elected prime minister. But Khan and his party have resigned from parliament, from the National Assembly. They've been holding huge protests at what they charge is a, the you know a foreign conspiracy to oust Khan, and they're calling this a, basically an illegitimate imported government, quote unquote, and a government of of thieves, of looters, uh, because of the corruption and money laundering charges against them. So it's going to be a very interesting few months ahead in, in Pakistan. So a ton to unpack there. I wonder first, where do you think it's sort of the natural starting place to think about? when things started to go south here? Like, when did you, you know, you follow this, this stuff fairly closely. Like, when was the point where you started to really raise your eyebrows and, and get concerned as to what was happening? Well, I mean, you know, the opposition has made it no secret that it wants Khan out. It, it charged that Khan came into power with the support of Pakistan's military. It called him, quote unquote, a selected prime minister. It called the Khan government uh, quote unquote, a hybrid regime. And Khan himself said, you know, we're on the same page with the military. So the opposition made no secret that it wanted Khan out. Uh, you know, a year and a half ago, it formed uh, an alliance of parties with whose sole purpose was to, to oust Khan. But it never really gained traction. I, you know, was following what the opposition was doing, but I was following more closely how Khan's relationship with the military was changing. That started changing around the fall of last year more overtly. 
There were always rumors of rifts in the relationship, but it didn't really change. But it changes, the changes started occurring um, and various factors started changing the relationship around the fall of last year. And the opposition's move to oust Khan, you know, again, moves that had been trying to make for a while, only gained traction essentially this spring, this March, when uh, Khan had essentially fallen out with Pakistan's military. And so that confluence of factors, uh, you know, essentially prompted us all, you know, who look at Pakistan, Pakistan watchers, to know that something different was happening. And then, of course, the various political parties and how they aligned either with the opposition or with Khan was another another indication as to how Khan's relationship with the military had unraveled because the coalition parties, in some ways, aligning with Khan was an indication that, that Khan was on his way out. You mentioned that there was a sort of inflection point in March with Khan and the military. What was, could you walk us through what was the cause of that? Right? Like, is that something that was anticipated? Was there like a precipitating event? Well, the inflection point, I would say, uh, probably happened in last fall. And then, you know, I think the factors just added on to one another to make it so that at this point, the opposition in March had enough traction Essentially, the military had finally withdrawn their support from from Khan and the opposition had enough traction to go ahead and sort of file this no confidence move and be reasonably confident about it. So I would I would point to three factors. The first uh, is last fall, the appointment of the chief of uh, the Inter-Services Intelligence, Pakistan's intelligence agency. Khan you know, waffled on the military's suggested appointment for weeks. That there was a lot of speculation then of a rift between Khan and the military and this causing embarrassment to the military, which could lead to a rift. And essentially the 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 question was on whether Khan wanted to transfer out the then intelligence chief who had been seen as a Khan loyalist uh, and who had helped Khan behind the scenes uh, in the election of 2018. Whether Khan wanted to him to be posted out, whether Khan wanted him, uh, there was speculation that he wanted him to be the next army chief. So the, the dilly-dallying on that, many of us wondered then what it would cost Khan. That's the first. The second factor was domestic governance issues, in particular with the leadership of Punjab. Uh, Pakistan's largest province. Khan's choice of chief minister had been controversial for three and a half years. The military didn't like him. The coalition (laughs) allies didn't like him. Even some of Khan's own party lawmakers didn't like him. And there had been calls for that chief minister's ouster that Khan had resisted. And ultimately, you know, sort of governance issues and sort of not failing, uh, not being able to perform in Punjab uh, was something that made him lose the favor of both the coalition uh, and and the military. And in the domestic governance issues, I would also put, you know, the pressures on the economy, rising inflation, rupee that had fallen in terms of its value relative to the dollar, rising unemployment. You know, rising inflation, of course, it's something that countries are suffering from the world over at this point, but but it was hurting 
the regular Pakistani. Uh, so that was a second bucket, sort of domestic governance issues. And I would say the third bucket was rifts that started emerging on foreign policy that have only become fully apparent in recent weeks. And those rifts really have to do with, you know, Khan's uh, approach towards uh, Russia, China, and, and the U.S., Essentially, Khan said that he wanted an independent foreign policy and he wanted good relationships with Russia, China and the U.S. But in the face of a cold shoulder from uh, the the Biden administration, no phone call from uh, President Biden to Imran Khan uh, since President Biden took office last year. Khan's visits uh, very recently in, in February to Beijing and then a visit a controversial visit in February to Moscow ended up looking like he was embracing Russia and China at the expense of the U.S. On the other hand, the military uh, in Pakistan desires a more more balanced relationship, something where it has a a very overtly good relationship with the U.S. Uh, And the, the, the chief of army staff actually in a speech about nine days ago, explicitly took a a, a much stronger stance against Russia's invasion of Ukraine than Khan ever did. So he said uh, that, you know, we cannot condone this. And there, so there seems to have been a discrepancy, uh, a falling off the same page, if you will, on foreign policy. And the military in many ways, Pakistan's military establishment is considered to really run foreign policy behind the scenes. So this kind of divergence on foreign policy, uh, this getting off the same page, no doubt hurt the relationship. And you, you'd spoken before about the the position of the opposition here. And when, when you say opposition, do you mean sort of a, a unified front of parties? Sort of, is it the case that, you know, in, in Pakistan, there's a united front among all the different parties that are not Khan's party to, you know, push him out and to oppose his rule? Or is it the case that, you know, over time, because of mounting universal opposition to his tenure in office, the parties sort of coalesced together and and gathered steam? That's a great question. So the opposition parties, the the two largest one, uh, ones that have now united into united opposition are the Pakistan People's Party and the Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz. And these two parties were at loggerheads with each other since uh, the, the, the 1980s. They alternated rule, alternated governments, one clamoring for the ouster of the other. But in uh, 2008, after Pakistan's last stint of military rule under Pervez Musharraf, these two parties entered into a compact, kind of a political compact that they would want to preserve kind of democracy at all costs. And since then, they've had a more conciliatory relationship with each other. Um, And while, you know, uh, the PPP uh, ruled uh, from 2008 to 2013 and the PMLN ruled from 2013 to 2018, these sort of traditional rivals when Khan came into power, this third party that then emerged as the, the largest party in the 2018 election, they basically coalesced into an opposition and other parties joined them, including 
an Islamist party that doesn't win a lot of seats in government. The Jamiat e Ulema Islam, Fazl, headed by uh, an Islamist named Malana Fazl Rahman, that party doesn't win a lot of seats in government, but it brings out a lot of street power. So these were the three major parties that formed that opposition alliance, whose sole purpose really was to oust Khan. And they were actually saying that, you know, Khan is part of this, um, is, uh, you know, a selected, as I said, quote unquote, figure of the Pakistani military. And they argued against the military's interference in politics uh, in 2020 when this alliance formed. But, you know, if you take a step back, this is part of a much longer cycle of instability in Pakistan, where opposition parties always clamor for the ouster of the sitting civilian government uh, and the sitting prime minister, whoever the opposition party uh, tends to be. Essentially, the incumbent government or the prime minister loses power when they fall out of favor with Pakistan's so-called establishment, uh, really uh, it's, it's, its military. So in that sense, this is not a new event or not a new uh, feature of Pakistani politics, but it's sort of age old. And the opposition parties that coalesce can be parties that have traditionally been rivals, but their objective uh, is working for the ouster of the, the sitting party. So the other factor that we maybe talked about a bit less is sort of public perception of Khan outside of just the parties and outside of the military. So maybe just as first as way of background, could you describe to people who may not know what Khan's sort of past life is and what his his stature within the country was and and then maybe chart over time like what has been the sort of trajectory of how people within the country have felt about him from you know the time that he declared his candidacy to his years in office? Well, Khan rose to popularity in Pakistan in the 1980s as a a cricket star and took Pakistan, took cricket crazy Pakistan to its first World Cup victory, to its only World Cup victory to date in uh, 1992. Uh, So he was an international cricket star, an international uh, renowned athlete, also a, a playboy, and turned to politics after sort of this, you know, time where he, through uh, philanthropic giving, founded a network of cancer hospitals in Pakistan. He turned to politics and, and, and started out really small. It was just him in, in, in parliament for, for a long time from his party. He eventually, you know, his star rose uh, as Pakistan's military uh, started getting very disillusioned with the two main parties at that point, the PMLN and the PPP, and saw in Khan an alternative politician. And Khan's main stance, it's, it's a populist stance, and it's an anti-corruption platform. So he rails against the corruption of the, the, the parties, the, the old parties, if you will, the PPP and the PMLN, And uh, he argues for an Islamic welfare state for the country, you know, and he's mobilized the the youth, the urban youth in particular uh, of Pakistan and uh, who who sort of uh, are a a significant part of his base. So with with that, with uh, his party doing well in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province that neighbors Afghanistan 
and with uh, the support and the backing in some ways of Pakistan's military, he first became, uh, you know, his party became the third largest party in Pakistan in the 2013 elections, and then finally won a plurality um, and was able to cobble together uh, a thin majority uh, through these coalition parties to form government in 2018. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. And so when, when you think about the events of the past you know month or so, or even extending out into the fall, what do you think has sort of been the, the relative weight and influence of A, the military, B, these opposition parties, and C, just declining public satisfaction with, with his tenure in office? Like, what do you attribute the bulk of the weight to, to his downfall to? 
Well, the opposition parties, you know, coalescing, staying united, um, seizing upon the economy as uh, the reason to ask for Khan's ouster. Uh, that's the, the ostensible story here, right? The, the overt story. But ultimately, this could not have happened had the military, the establishment, not withdrawn their support from Khan. So without Khan losing that support, the opposition parties, you know, sort of seizing upon the problems with Pakistan's economy wouldn't have gone anywhere. It is the the factor that tipped things away from Khan and into the opposition's favor is that the military withdrew its support from Khan. Now, all of this happens behind the scenes. So it's very difficult to see in Pakistan how the maneuvering behind the scenes occurs. But it's unmistakable that things have gone not in Khan's favor. (laughs) Things have gone against Khan in, in recent weeks. First, key coalition allies stepping away from Khan, including one party that had ostensibly drawn close to Khan and formed the coalition government at the behest of Pakistan's military. So that, you know, there was a behind the scenes sort of maneuvering uh, that led the coalition parties uh, away from Khan. Two, when uh, Khan's government took unconstitutional steps in order to dissolve the National Assembly last Sunday on on April 3rd, the Supreme Court decision that came out was clearly a constitutional win. It was something that sided in, in favor of Pakistan's constitution. But one has to remember that this is a Supreme Court that has had a checkered history in Pakistan. It is a Supreme Court that had rubber stamped military coups based on what it called a doctrine of necessity, and it's taken other questionable decisions. So the fact that it came out so heavily, yes, in the right way, uh, you know, pro-constitution, some are saying it wouldn't have done had the military prevailed upon the Supreme Court, had it kept its support behind Khan to, to rule the opposite way. So the military's withdrawal of support here was key in the Supreme Court actually taking the the right step to uh, uphold the Constitution and to let the Constitution prevail. You know, again, we can come to the events of of Saturday when, uh, you know, at the last minute, the Supreme Court made it clear that it would hold the the speaker and the deputy speaker in contempt of court if the vote of no confidence wasn't held. Again, it taking this stance is important. Again, it upheld the constitution, but would it have taken it had the military pressured it to do otherwise? So the military's standing back, the, the that that so-called neutrality ends up playing a crucial role in the chips aligning against Khan. And ultimately, that's the factor that weighs the most, though all the other factors have mattered and all the other factors were needed as well. I wonder just what has surprised you the most about the way this has unfolded, right? In some respects, like 
you describing this, everything, you know, it, it makes intuitive sense. But what has been the biggest surprise to you? Going back to 2018, the the relationship between Khan and the military, if you had asked me then, I would have said, you know, Khan might be the one prime minister in Pakistan to be in office for five years because of that close relationship with the with the military. Now, other prime ministers have had close relationships with the uh, with the military in the past, including the, uh, you know, the brother of the new prime minister, Nawaz Sharif. He was a favored uh, politician of, of uh, Pakistan's military in the 1980s. And that's how he rose to power. And and, you know, that. Um, relationship also cooled. So, so there's a history of these relationships cooling, but sort of Khan's particular um, insistence, the first three years he was in power, uh, up till this year, that he and the military were on the same page, made uh, many of us think that they had arrived at some sort of equilibrium where Khan had figured out how to manage that relationship in order to preserve his hold on power. And to me, the most surprising thing is how that has unraveled in recent months. And now the the new politics that that Khan is running, right? So, so, you know, Shabazz Sharif being the, the prime minister of Pakistan, the next few months are going to be Really interesting because there's going to be the, the you know the next election uh, sometime in the next few months to a year. That election campaign will be will be fascinating. But to me, the the really interesting things are what are what is already happening on the ground in Pakistan. So yesterday, uh, as I mentioned, Khan's party led huge rallies in his support, and there were two things to note. Their anti-military stance, an overt anti-military stance, which is quite stunning to see uh, in public protests in Pakistan, and the stance that this is a foreign conspiracy. They're basically alleging, uh, they're pointing fingers at Pakistan's military and, you know, at the U.S. and the the opposition as all being in cahoots for, for Khan's ouster. And sort of that overt stance and then Khan's a sort of uh, stance today, uh, he and his party resigning from parliament, basically uh, calling for fresh elections, saying that's the only way forward. You know, this is sort of not working within the system, but it, this is a politics of agitation. And it's not surprising when it comes to Khan, because, you know, he was an opposition politician in 2013 with uh, this sort of politics of, uh, agitation led huge rallies against Nawaz Sharif. Then, it's not surprising, but it's surprising how quickly he has gone from being the military's favored one to running this uh, opposition agitational uh, street uh, politics again. Within within a few days, we have seen this happening, and that's been quite striking. So, what comes next? Like, what's what are the next steps, and and how will we sort of get a get a sense of who might be in charge in the coming weeks, months, years? These are these are big questions. So, right now, Shabazz Sharif is prime minister. The next elections have to be held by the summer of twenty twenty three. Shabazz Sharif has a formidable task in front of him. So, the most important thing for him is going to be the domestic economy. 
you know, figure out inflation, figure out employment, not easy tasks, right? Not easy asks of anyone. And he has a very short time horizon to turn these things around. And, you know, he has the next election to look forward to. So the real prize is not being in power right now. The real prize is figuring out how to win the next election, to figure out how he can turn things around so that that helps him in the future, to figure out if they can do something about the corruption cases against them in order to, to you know, bring perhaps Nawaz Sharif back into the fold, who remains very popular. He is the charismatic one of the two brothers. He's the one who's been prime minister many times, obviously, three times. And so that's the task for him sort of domestically. And, you know, he has this foreign conspiracy allegation to deal with where Khan supporters certainly and perhaps others in the population uh, believe this foreign conspiracy theory and he has to rebut it uh, and discredit it. How does he manage to do that? So if he manages to repair the recently broken, in many ways, relationship with the U.S., does Khan hurt him? uh, Basically saying, look, he was in cahoots with the U.S. Or is Sharif able to walk that fine line of actually repairing that relationship with the U.S. while also rebutting that foreign conspiracy? That's all on, on Sharif's side. Khan is going to run a polarizing political campaign. That's That much is clear. You know, he's he's in some ways been in campaign mode since the vote of no confidence was filed against him. So it's going to be a polarizing campaign. Ultimately, it's a parliamentary democracy. So what matters is who is fielded by each of these parties in the various constituencies in the country and who can win at least a plurality of votes and have enough coalition allies to form a majority in, in parliament. Now, in Pakistan, a lot of that comes down not to big national issues, but to whether you have what are so-called electables on your side. You know, basically lawmakers who engage in kind of patronage politics in their local constituencies, they give people jobs, they provide favors, and that's how they get elected. And these lawmakers move from one party to the other, depending on where they see the, you know, the next ruling party is gonna, going to fall. So ultimately, it also depends on which party is seen as the uh, party more favored by the Pakistani military. You know, uh, is Khan's relationship with the military, is the rift between that relationship uh, for good? Can that be repaired? Uh, Or does the PMLN, Sharif's party, manage to ingratiate itself with the military enough so that, uh, you know, it's considered favored. All of these factors basically, you know, dictate who comes into power. And interestingly enough, Pakistan has an incumbency disadvantage at the national level. So whoever's in power in the current government loses power in the next one. Uh, so the the difficult task ahead of Shabazz Sharif is he's in power for a few months. He needs to make sure that those few months don't turn into an incumbency disadvantage for him. So I want to wrap up with two sort of bigger picture questions, the first of which is about the the foreign policy issue. So you mentioned that uh, one of the three you know big factors precipitating the decline here was was disagreement about foreign policy issues. So looking forward, what do you think this all the news and all the changes will mean for you know Pakistan's broader foreign policy 
approach and and do you see things changing do you think do you see things changing in an enduring way or is this sort of a temporary flare-up that will result in the status quo foreign policy wise well pakistan had been shifting its foreign policy uh, for 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 a bit now post the u.s and actually even before that as the u.s withdrawal from afghanistan was becoming imminent you know, Pakistan was kind of shifting to a, you know, post-America and Afghanistan era, basically saying, look, first, we want good relationships with, you know, both China and the U.S. We don't want these relationships to be considered zero sum. Just because we have a good economic relationship with China doesn't mean we can't have one with the U.S., but clearly saying we don't want all our eggs to be in one basket. We want to pursue good relationships with both countries. Two, it was asking the world to look at it, not just in terms of security, not just in terms of Afghanistan, but to look at it on a multidimensional kind of spectrum, in particular, take a look at its economy, which uh, Pakistan wanted more investment in, uh, including from the West. So when the Biden administration came into power in 2021, Pakistan came to it with sort of this geoeconomics pitch saying Uh, We want a relationship based uh, on a good economic relationship, not, uh, you know, thinking uh, only about security. And, you know, we want the U.S. to sort of fundamentally rethink its relationship. Now, the U.S., given the withdrawal from Afghanistan, given its priorities were elsewhere, wasn't uh, interested in some ways in taking Pakistan up on that offer right then. But that's Pakistan's, you know, the the through line here is that that kind of pitch. And uh, the question now is whether it finds takers, uh, essentially, for that pitch, while still maintaining sort of security cooperation with the U.S. on Afghanistan, you know, which the military was always keen on doing with with the U.S. and which uh, ostensibly Sharif's government will be uh, sort of more positive towards or more amenable towards. So, you know, Pakistan will want to balance its relationship, perhaps move a little bit away from Russia relative to, you know, what had been looking uh, like a Russia-leaning posture, even though it was remaining neutral, but had looked like a Russia-leaning posture because of Khan's visit to Moscow. Perhaps Pakistan will take a bit of a step back from that. Um, uh, But it will seek to maintain relationships with both China, which Sharif's party uh, by the way, has had a, had a close relationship with, uh, and the flagship of the Belt and Road Initiative was launched in Pakistan in 2015 under uh, Sharif's brother's government. So the relationship with China will remain strong, the relationship uh, with the U.S. Sharif may want to pursue, but that really depends on whether the U.S. engages. He's also not going to want to, you know, step into this foreign conspiracy theory before the election in the sense that he's not going to want to pursue a positive relationship with the U.S. if it comes at the expense of him losing the next election, because that's something that Khan is going to uh, want to tout in the in the campaign. So the major, perhaps, you know, recalibration or the major statements on foreign policy may come after the next election. But sort of uh, right, right sizing or uh, the, the shifts that had already been in play, you know, moving back towards those 
will probably happen pretty soon. And to close, I wonder what, looking back and reflecting on all this, what does it reflect about the the state of democracy in Pakistan? Does it reflect in some ways, you know, the stability of institutions like, you know, the Supreme Court ruling in a way that, as you characterize, sort of supports democratic values or, or does it reflect more ongoing political turmoil, democratic vulnerability? What do you make of it? On the whole, I would say that the building blocks of Pakistan's democracy remain as they were, right? Uh, which is, you know, it's an it's overtly a parliamentary democracy, but behind the scenes, the military plays a role. And whichever political party is in power and the opposition has to contend with that. And that's sort of the, the landscape in which they function. Now, a few changes have been made uh, since 2008, since Pakistan's last stint with military rule, to strengthen the constitution so that the so that its democracy, its parliament gets strengthened. And those are what we are seeing play out. So the fact that Khan was ousted through a vote of no confidence and not in any other way is reflective of that. It's important to note that those were steps forward. It's also important to note that Pakistan's military is not interested in being in power uh, overtly. It doesn't want to take over the reins. It does not want to rule directly. It's content to rule behind the scenes. It's content not to show overt any overt interference. That's also notable. That was not always the case. So, you know, in the long uh, sort of stretch or long view of Pakistani history, yes, this is part of a long cycle of instability uh, with behind the scenes maneuvering by Pakistan's military, but the mechanisms used are constitutional mechanisms because there have been some steps to strengthen the constitution and Pakistan's democracy. Those, because they are enshrined now in the constitution, those remain. And that's important. Can this government come in and can the next government come in to enshrine other uh, more positive norms uh, as well as uh, constitutional changes? That'll be important to see. But can they ultimately do anything about civilian military relations in that civilian supremacy is ensured? That's still the big question mark. I don't see anything fundamental changing in terms of civil military relations and that balance or civilian supremacy uh, in Pakistan. So that's that's uh, important to note. And that is a perfect place to wrap. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. Here, you also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. You can join us later this April, for example, when we'll be hosting a joint live show with Georgetown Law about the implications of the Russian invasion on the international legal system. You can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and the latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. And you can check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patiahau, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo.
Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thanks for listening.